Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As always, it's a blessing to come to God's Word this morning. We are turning again to Second Thessalonians. We're coming toward the end of this study in First and Second Thessalonians. I know many of you, like me, have been so refreshed by these letters at this time. I'm expecting to finish up next week before we turn to the Old Testament for the fall. But this morning we're in Second Thessalonians chapter three, and just as a reminder of where we've been. We've seen Paul talk about Christ's return coming in the future, and we've seen him talk about the work of lawlessness that's at work now and will be at work even more in days to come, in which some will be pulled from their faith in Christ. And as a response, Paul has urged the Thessalonians to stand firm in their faith in Christ. He's prayed also that God would establish their hearts in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And so having traced this big picture outline of events and called for steadfastness, Paul now, before he wraps up this letter, is going to address a particular situation that has developed in the Thessalonian church and how the church should respond to it. And so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, read with me 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. This is a word that you spoke by your spirit and now continue to speak to us through your word. So I pray that you would challenge sin in our heart and raise our eyes to our Savior, that we would be encouraged and might glorify you more and more by the pattern of our lives. And we pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Last week, if you remember, Paul summoned the Thessalonians to stand firm in the traditions that they were taught, to stand firm in the teachings of the apostles about the the doctrinal truths about Christ and their salvation. 
And this week, we see that Paul is again coming back to the traditions that the Thessalonians received. But this time, the teachings of the apostles are not directed so much toward the doctrinal truths, but how to live as followers of Christ. And all through the New Testament, we see this pattern that following Christ involves both what you believe and how you live. Maybe you think of what Paul says in Timothy when he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. What we hear is that the traditions of Christ and his apostles involve both your life and your doctrine, how you live and what you believe. And in Thessalonica, what we've heard so far is that some of what they believe was off base. They were, there was false teaching about Christ's coming that was circulating the church. But now we hear that there's also a specific pattern of ungodly living that has sprung up and taken root in their midst, particularly a pattern of idleness. And Paul doesn't mince his words, does he? I think the main point of this passage could be summarized this way, that the follower of Jesus must reject idleness and weariness in doing good, and that the church should hold one another accountable to this call to godly living. As we spell this out, what we'll see is that in this passage there are three commands, three commands or calls that Paul gives. He, he calls believers from idleness to diligent work. He calls the church to discipline those who persist in idleness. And then he calls believers not to grow weary in doing good. And we want to work through each of these commands or these calls this morning. So we begin with God's call from idleness to work. And Paul lays out the problem in verses 6 and 7 when he says, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now, it's important for us to understand that the word for idleness here is not the typical word for laziness. It literally is talking about unruliness or walking out of line. I think when we hear idleness, we tend to envision the classic Proverbs sluggard. You remember the lazy guy in Proverbs who's sort of laid out on the couch and is so lazy that when he buries his hand in the bowl of potato chips, he's too lazy to even bring it back to his mouth again. At least I always picture potato chips. I realize they probably didn't have potato chips in Solomon's day. But that's the sluggard. That's who we typically think of. But Paul doesn't seem to be addressing this kind of lazy person, but rather a group of people who were actually quite busy, but not busy with work. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly why this group was not working. Many commentators think that this is the same group of people who were proclaiming that Christ had already come or that Christ was coming any day. And so, since Christ's imminent return was upon us, there's no reason to work anymore. And that may be the case. If that is the case, I would say our, our church and, and we as Christians today probably tend to the opposite error. Not so much that we're not working because of Christ's return, but we're so busy focused on our work and our success and our budgets and our money that we're not really thinking much about Christ's return. That's probably the best guess for us anyways. But um, another option besides the false teaching here is that these Christians in Thessalonica were those who had very little. And they had been supported by those who had much. You remember the pattern in Acts, right? Those who had much would support those who had little. And it may be that 
Those who had little have come to accept this arrangement as a pretty good arrangement and have decided that they'll continue to rely on those who were supporting them. The reality is we don't know for sure why this group wasn't working, but we do know that instead of working, this group was spending their free hours stirring up disruption in the church. I think Paul gives the best summary of the situation in verse 11. You see it there, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. That's that word for unruliness, out of line again. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. If you're thinking of a a home example, this group was not like the, the lazy child who won't get out of bed. It's rather like the listless child who doesn't want to do homework and doesn't want to do chores and doesn't want to read or do anything productive. So they keep themselves busy by bugging everyone else in the house. You've probably been in that situation before. And these unruly idlers in Thessalonica are working around the church, spreading gossip, false teaching and ideas, living off the support from the church, meddling in other people's lives, distracting the church from its calling, and giving the church a poor reputation. And it's impossible to overemphasize the strength of Paul's comments on this group of people. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, Paul, of course, is not condemning those who are unable to work, but those who are choosing not to work and to use their time instead for the church's harm rather than its good. And Paul responds by commanding diligence, labor, and toil, and reminding the Thessalonians of his own example. He says that he and his fellow apostles toiled and labored day and night that they might not be a burden to any and to give them an example to follow. And in doing this, Paul is making a clear connection between work and the follower of Christ, between work and godliness. The pattern of Christ's apostles was diligent work, and it's the pattern set for followers of Christ as well. And this pattern shouldn't surprise us at all. Because God created us to work. You remember Genesis chapter 2. God creates Adam. And what does it say? It says, he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. We're told that God created us in his image. And we're told that God worked both in creation. And then Jesus says that his father is at work from the beginning until now. We're created in his image. And so we're called to, to work as well. And God gives us this call that we might care for, maintain, beautify, and fill his creation and care for his people. And of course, the work was cursed by the fall. When we put our faith in Christ, God sends his spirit in us to remake us in his image, to renew us by his Holy Spirit, to make us new creations so that we would once again do what he has called us to do to the glory of his name. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul repeatedly, all throughout his letters, expects that those who are redeemed by Christ will be diligent, hard workers who work for the Lord and not for man. But in addition to this sort of theology of work that Paul assumes, Paul adds another reason for why we ought to work in this passage. He gives us another key reason why hard work is so important for the follower of Christ. And you see it in verse 8. Paul says in verse 8 that he worked hard in order not to be a burden to anyone. And then in verse 12, he says, each one should work quietly and earn his own living. 
Paul extends this principle in Ephesians chapter 4, 28, when he says that believers should do honest work in order that each might have something to share with any in need. In other words, as believers, we are called to work so that we would not be a burden, but that we would earn our own living and also have something to share with anyone who's in need. We're called to work in order to be a blessing to God's people in the church, not a burden depending upon others. Now, as we reflect on Paul's comments, I I know we don't know the exact reason for the Thessalonians' lack of work, but I think there's three principles Paul has established that we should hold up to our hearts. So I want to invite you to consider these as you examine your own heart this morning. First, Paul clearly establishes that for God's people, work is a good calling that God has given us. And idleness is a sin unbefitting for believers. Now, I hate to say it if I can speak this way for a moment, but if you're a teen boy, congratulations. You have earned the reputation as the group in society most likely to be idle and to waste your time in useless entertainment instead of embracing God's call to work diligently. Now, I realize that not everyone who is a teen boy fits that category but it's probably a good time to check our hearts and our lives. And remember that God calls you to be men who will lead, who will take responsibility, who will work diligently for the good of your families and for your church. That's what God has called you to do as you reflect the character of Christ. So don't put that off now. You won't change your habits easily later in life. But of course, we don't need to be a teen boy to be tempted by idleness. All of us need to check our hearts, especially given the attitude of work around us in our day. I'm sure you're all aware of the attitude towards work in our culture. You've maybe even seen the t-shirt that has different emojis for each day of the week. You know, Monday, it's the crying face. Tuesday, it's the pained expression. Wednesday, it moves to the grit teeth. You know, Thursday, there's the sly, you know, upturned smile as things are getting better. Friday, the big smile. And Saturday, the party emoji. Followed by Sunday with the pained expression as another work week is upon us. That's our culture's attitude towards work, isn't it? We feel it and see it all around us in, in ourselves. And while we would recognize, yes, the curse of sin has made work hard, this is not the attitude of the redeemed child of God. We work for the Lord, knowing that he has called us to work. And so our goal and our attitude is not to avoid work at all costs in order to get to the relaxation. No, our goal is to do whatever work God gives us joyfully and unto his glory. After all, perhaps our work ethic is the most visible testimony of our faith in Christ. We're working all the time at school, in our jobs, And any non-Christian can spot the fact that a poor worker who lacks self-control and walks in idleness and unruliness is giving constant evidence of a life lived by self and pleasure and not for the glory of God or for the love of God and others. One author, Tom Nelson, shares a story about the great military commander Alexander the Great. Many of you would know that Alexander the Great was perhaps the most successful and driven of the ancient generals. And there's a story that while Alexander the Great was going through his camp, he stumbled upon a soldier who was drunk and slovenly and stumbling around the camp. 
And Alexander the Great, the general, looked at that soldier and said, soldier, what is your name? And the soldier said, Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great glared back at him and said, either change your name or change your behavior. He didn't want anyone shaming the name of Alexander by his behavior. Yet here we are as those who have put our faith in Christ, claiming the name of Christ. And the question is, in the very visible manner of our behavior, are we adorning the gospel and the name of Christ or undermining the gospel and our claim to represent the name of Christ? That's the first principle for us to hold up to our hearts. Second, Paul warns us not to be busybodies in the church. And even in our 40-hour work week, we have plenty of spare time to be busybodies if we want to. In Thessalonica, this group seemed to be working around the church, sucking the energy, the unity, and the faithfulness from the church by gossip, chatter, pushing false ideas, and time-consuming distraction. And these activities can be just as much a temptation for us in the church today. And so may it never be true of us that the church's work and reputation is hindered by our busybodiness. And then the third principle that Paul gives us to hold up to our hearts is this. Paul gives us a clear reminder of why we work. Paul calls us to diligent labor, but not so that we'll get a good job and be successful and achieve the American dream. No, Paul stresses that we are to work quietly, to earn our own living, so that we won't be a burden, and so that we will have something to share with anyone in need. I wonder if we've honestly searched our hearts when it comes to our paychecks recently. In light of the gospel, one of the motivations that should get us up in the morning, one of the things that should excite us and motivate us as we wake up and see another day of work ahead of us is so that we might be a blessing, earning money so that we might be able to give to others and to the body of Christ. Now, of course, in the course of life, any one of us may be in the time of being in need. And if we're in that place, it's appropriate and good for us to receive help from the body of Christ. That's how God designed it. And so the call here is not to shame those who are unemployed or physically unable to work right now or who are doing their best but are still in need. No, the call here is to shape our hearts and our goal as we work. God calls us from idleness to work so that we might give to those who are in need, that we might have something to share. And I wonder if we could just ask ourselves, does our budget and our bank statement reflect that priority? Well, we've spent the most time on the first point. There are two more brief calls, and they'll be much briefer. But we look secondly, having seen Paul's call from idleness to work, now to Paul's call to discipline those who persist in idleness. Paul's call to the church can be in such a direct manner that it can startle us at times. But I want us to remember the background here. Remember when we read 2 Thessalonians, we're watching a church develop from the church we saw in 1 Thessalonians. And back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul called the believers to work quietly with their own hands. And in chapter 5, he said, warn those who are idle or the unruly. That's this category of people. So when Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, he's not only writing to those who are being idle, but he's writing to those who have resisted a warning and persisted in their pattern of sin. 
And Paul assumes that the church needs to take steps to address those who are not living a godly lifestyle. This passage gives us one of the most thorough descriptions of the church's call to discipline those who claim the name of Christ. And I would summarize Paul's words this way. Church discipline is God's call to protect God's church from sin and error and to love those caught in sin by issuing consequences aimed to bring about repentance. Church discipline has that twofold focus, and we see them both in this passage. Look first in verse 6. Paul commands the church to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And this can sound rather harsh. Coming from Lancaster County, we might get visions of shunning, or if you don't agree with me or don't act the way I want to, I'm going to reject you and turn away from you and, and stay away from you. But that, I don't think, is the primary focus of Paul's command here. The primary focus of Paul's command is not to punish the sinner in this comment in verses 6 and 7, but to protect the church and its godliness by urging believers not to participate in sin. Bad company corrupts good morals, Paul says, so don't hang around with those involved in persistent patterns of sin. Don't spend time with them. Don't join with them. Allowing sin to go unaddressed and unchecked in the church damages the honor of Christ and risks pulling others into sin with us. And so Paul says, keep away from the idol. Don't join them. Don't participate with them. Separate yourself from them in order to protect God's people from sin and error. That's one goal of church discipline. But the church is also called to act out of love for those who are caught in sin. And we see this down in verses 14 and 15. Here again, we have this group of people who have heard a warning about their sin and have rejected that warning and persisted in sin. And Paul says that if anyone hears this warning and does not obey it, the church is to have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Again, when we hear hear these words, that he may be ashamed, we can have the idea of the church verbally shaming someone for their choices or for disagreeing with us. But Paul's describing something more specific. The phrase, that they may be ashamed, is literally saying that they may realize their guilt. You know the feeling that comes upon you when someone points out a sin in your life and you suddenly realize that they're right and you have been wrong? And that sense of shame when you realize that you've been acting against your Savior? That's what Paul's talking about here, that the church would act in a way that would point out to someone in sin that they might realize their guilt. And the strength of Paul's language, I think, is a step further than it was in verse 6. While in verse 6 they were to not join, not participate in sin, now they're supposed to have nothing to do with him, which means draw a distinction between them and you. If they're persisting in sin, you are to make it clear that you do not have any part of that sin. And many commentators wonder if this is also an action of of asking this person to hold back from the Lord's table, to hold back from fellowship around the Lord's table because of their persistent sin. But the goal is to make clear to this person that the church is acting and living in a very different way than they are and will not approve or join in their persistent sin. Again, of course, this sounds perhaps arrogant. Maybe this sounds inappropriate for the church to act in this way. But if we have any doubt about Paul's intentions, he clarifies it in verse 15. He says, do not regard this person as an enemy, 
but warn him as a brother. The church is not to vilify those who disagree with it. The church is not to treat as an enemy those who have shown themselves in the past to confess Christ. No, we are to warn them as a brother. Any one of us would warn a friend who is in danger. I was reading about a a particular place in North Carolina, a river, where there is a great-looking spot to swim, but right around the bend is a waterfall. And each year, there are several deaths as people go to swim there and are sucked by the current over the waterfall. If you know of this and your friend wants to swim in that river, you are going to say, no, don't do that. You're going to warn them and stay away. You're not going to join them and hold them back because you care for them. And this is recognizing the heart of the gospel. If we would warn someone who would be swept over a waterfall, how much more if we believe that faith and obedience to Jesus is a matter of eternal life and death, how much more would we warn them? If we believe that God's word is his own truth, that Jesus Christ offers us forgiveness of sin and eternal life, but to reject Jesus and to walk in a pattern of persistent sin is to head towards eternal punishment, why would we not warn one another? Why would we not call one another to faith in Christ and repentance? And can I encourage each one of you that this is why being a member of a church is so important? For anyone who knows the deceitfulness of sin, we know how easy it is to be caught up in sin, to be deceived by thinking things that are not true or doing things that are dishonoring to the Lord. If we know how easy sin and falsehood enter our minds and our hearts, and if, and if we long for salvation and long to be one of God's people, then we want to come to a church and say, I want to be part of you and I want you to come get me if I start acting in a way that is dishonoring to Christ or is departing from his salvation. I want you to care for my soul and come after me for my good. And I hope that you can expect that from this church because we love you and care about you and really believe the gospel that Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death. Well, God has called us from idleness to work. He's called the church to warn those who persist in sin because of the truth and the importance of the gospel. Last, Paul calls the church not to grow weary in doing good. And you see that call in verse 13. Would you end by looking at this verse with me? Verse 13 is such a beautiful encouragement for God's people. And Paul echoes this call all throughout the New Testament. Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And the weariness that we're talking about here is not so much tiredness. Not the tiredness that you need the little caffeine jolt to wake you up in the morning. Maybe you're one of those who wakes up and as the week goes on, you feel that physical tiredness and you have a firm belief in that quote that says, behind every successful person is a substantial amount of coffee. As a non-coffee drinker, I beg to differ. Although maybe success is still elusive for me and that's the problem. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is not that we're physically tired and we need to get woken up. Weariness for Paul refers to get, getting worn down by the long battle against sin so that we give in in the end. You know the things that weary us, don't you? As parents, it's the persistent complaining of children. 
And we respond with wonderful patience in grace the first time and the third time and maybe even the fifth time, but by the ninth time, we snap in our own anger and our own sin because we grow weary of doing good. Or the temptation of our sinful desires that we resist once or twice, but the temptation is still sitting there in our minds or on our screens and having resisted once or twice, eventually we give in. Or maybe it's the subtle discouragement and despair Or maybe it's the anxiety and worry in our minds. It's constantly pushing for more space in our minds and our hearts. And we try to pray and we try to think on God's promises and mercy, but our hearts are so worried and anxious or so discouraged. And in the end, we grow weary. And so we let them have full sway in our minds and our hearts and anxiety and discouragement overwhelm us. You can add your examples, but we know what it is to grow weary in fighting against sin. But our call is to remember what is before us. As Paul said, if we do not grow weary in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. What is that referring to? It's referring to the crown of glory for the one who perseveres. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, where it calls us to imitate Christ, to look to Christ who endured death for the sake of the joy that was set before him. And then Hebrews says, consider him. You, brother and sister in Christ, consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If we do not grow weary, there is a crown of glory stored up for his people. David Mathis reminds us that the vast majority of doing good happens not in the limelight to be celebrated by thousands, but in the private, unobserved places where God's kingdom goes forward. Isn't that true of so much of our doing good? It's not done in front of people. It's done in the quiet, unobserved places of our homes and our workplaces. Mathis goes on, he says, doing good is not like the flash and sizzle of fireworks, but the slow growth of crops. It's not done through remotes and apps that let us feel a sense of control, but through planting and watering and waiting that forces us to trust in God. But can't we also say, as Mathis also reminds us, that even though doing good is often done in the unobserved places of our lives, that it's also true that a church community is built up and encouraged by seeing one another persist in doing good? I know that one of the greatest joys and encouragements to me in my own walk with Christ over the last seven years as youth pastor was seeing middle school and high school students who made conscious decisions to pursue Christ in the face of challenge, who fought against temptation, or who testified to Christ in their lives. See, by not growing weary, by continuing to do good, we will both reap the crown of glory held out before us, but we will also encourage and build up the church as together as a congregation we seek to not grow weary and encourage one another as we do that together. So as one commentator puts it, Brothers and sisters, in everything, let us never grow tired in doing what is right. Well, we come to the end of another passage. And once again, at the core of everything Paul has said is our call to faith in Christ. We know our sin, don't we? We know our weariness, our inability to obey God in our own strength. But Paul has already talked about, and we don't want to lose sight of what he said immediately before this passage, that we have a great Savior who offers us forgiveness and new life if we come to Jesus. And if we come to Jesus in faith, we are united to him 
And he gives us his Holy Spirit to live in us so that we have both his blood to cover our sin, but also all the resources of the Holy Spirit of God living in us to strengthen us to pursue him now and to hold us fast from growing weary, guaranteeing the hope at the end that if we are in Christ, he will bring us to be with him in glory for all eternity. What a great Savior we have. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge that your word constantly holds before us areas that our own selfishness and sin are at play. We know there are ways for us to repent and draw near to you this morning. We know that we need you and we need one another to call us to obedience to Christ, not so that we'll be good enough finally to enter heaven, No, but because we have a wonderful Savior, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give us your spirit and enable us to be united to you and have life with you forever. I pray this morning that each one here who might be listening would know the hope of Jesus and would know the call of Jesus and would come to Jesus in faith and obedience for the hope that you offer. We pray this this morning for your sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.